You're listening to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. I'm your host, Richard Cantu. Please join me as I talk about World War I history and preserve the stories from the soldiers who lived through it. Welcome back, folks. This is episode 51, part two for the Western Front Fall Offensive. Kind of a long title, but this is what it is. For this episode, I'm going to talk about a couple things. I'm going to give a brief recap on the Battle of Laws, the Second Battle of Champagne, and the Third Battle of Artois. I already did an episode on the Battle of Laws. This was episode 31, but I'd like to recap to get everyone up to speed. So I'll quickly recap Laws and then discuss the French battles. But the heart of this episode is on one particular French soldier at Artois during this time the Bailu, Louis Barthas. It's his experience during the autumn of 1915. So yeah, I think this is going to be a great episode. You're going to get an interesting perspective on the war from an interesting guy. But before I get ahead of myself, let me tell you what I'm drinking. I have a lot to cover for this episode. I don't have any new life updates, so I'm skipping right to the drink. For this episode, I'm drinking a Chimay White. Last episode, I talked about Belgian beers, and I really wanted to drink one for this episode. So, here I am. I got my glass in hand. Drinking a Chimay for this episode. And it's just how I remember it. I've had several of these. It's a damn good Belgian beer. I think it's going to do the job. All right, let me recap the last episode. Even though I already did an episode on the Battle of Laws, because I wanted to bring the podcast back to the Western Front, I decided to focus the buildup for the Battle of Laws. That's what the focus was on. You have to understand how much movement was taking place for the British Army at this time. There was a massive buildup for the British, not only in soldiers, but with munitions and provisions. The British line now expanded down to the Somme all the way up to La Basse. Before summer, they were spread out too thin. They needed more soldiers to occupy more ground. Fortunately, the fighting had simmered down by summer, and this allowed the British to ship the 21st and 24th Divisions from Kitchener's new army over to France to support the new offensive. This also gave them time to ship over munitions needed to support the troops. Artillery is still the one weapon that commanders believe will win the war, if your army is better equipped. And this theory will remain through the rest of the war. But there was one weapon that the British will introduce in their arsenal that they've never used before. A weapon that had been used on them back in April of 1915. A weapon purely meant to exterminate the enemy like a bug. That weapon is gas. The British will use chlorine gas on the Germans for the first time at the Battle of Laws. They had to move tons of it to the front lines. A very tedious process that took a lot of hands. Then, on September 25th, even with the weather not in their favor, the British launched their assault onto Laws. And... In a nutshell, that's what I discussed on the last episode, the build-up before the battle. All right, now I'm going to recap the fall offensive battles. 
By this time, the French and British commanders were very worried that Russia could fall at any time. There was civil unrest. Their troops are hurting. The Germans had taken key cities along with taking 1.5 million Russian prisoners of war, along with hundreds of thousands of casualties. Russia was in bad shape at this time. The French and British commanders were worried that the German soldiers on the Eastern Front would start reinforcing the Western Front, which they were right. Germany will now put its focus back on Belgium and France. Their answer was to launch a combined offensive spreading from Laws down to Champagne on the 25th of, of September. The French targets were Vimy Ridge at Artois and Mezières at Champagne. And of course, the British target was Laws. The British kicked off the battle by releasing 150 tons of chlorine gas from over 5,200 cylinders across roughly a 14,500-yard front. Prior to this, they bombarded the German lines with artillery. However, the Germans were wising up to pre-bombardments. They would fall back during the attack, then run back to the front after it was silenced. There's a few things that went wrong for the British that led to the failure of this battle. The gas was launched with no wind to carry it towards the Germans, so it ended up sitting with the British. The 15th Scottish Division got it the worst. The new gas masks were so ineffective, they couldn't breathe through them. Some of the men ripped it off and took their chances. Shouldn't be a surprise many casualties were taken from this. German machine guns were well in place and were ripping the men apart by the hundreds. And when I say ripping through them, I mean it. They would swipe from left to right or vice versa, and it would just shred through dozens of men at a time. Back and forth, the gun went. The soldiers that did gain ground didn't have enough support and reserves brought up to hold the ground. The reserves didn't make it to the fight until the next morning, so naturally, they couldn't hang on. The British right flank was supposed to be in sync with the French left. The French delayed their assault until the afternoon, so the British right flank was exposed. You know, the French really screwed the British during this battle. The artillery bombardment prior to the release of gas and, tr and troops did little damage to the barbed wire and the German troops occupying the front lines. Uh, as I just said a moment ago, by now the Germans knew to pull back during the bombardment and then pull up back to the front after it stopped. By the end of the first day, even with the failure of the gas and the artillery failing to cut through the wire, those who miraculously managed to stay alive held a good portion of the German front lines, but they were mentally and physically exhausted. Problem is, the reserves weren't being pulled up to support. They're still miles away from the battle when it kicked off. On the 26th, the 21st and 24th reserve divisions arrived on the scene, but couldn't do anything up to this point. They got slaughtered. Men were dying everywhere on the battlefield. The whole damn countryside became one big morgue. Between the 26th of September and the 8th of October, the Germans continued to bring up reserves and take back the ground that was lost before settling back in. On October 8th, the Battle of Laws came to an end. The British had failed to hold the ground that was taken. The Germans called this the Liechtenfeld von Laws, the Corpse Field of Laws. For the main attack 
between the 25th and the 28th of September, the British took an estimated 48,367 casualties. Then, the days leading up to the 8th of October, they took another 10,880 casualties, leaving the final estimation at 59,247 casualties for the British. At the Third Battle of Artois, the French 10th Army would try to take Vimy Ridge from the German 6th Army. They launched their offensive close to 12.30 p.m., almost six hours after the British launched theirs. By the 26th, they had managed to take Suchet north of Vimy, but to the southeast, they made little progress. The German machine gun teams were extremely heavy at the top of Vimy. The French made ground, but eventually the machine guns became too much for them as the men were being ripped apart. Joffre ordered his men to simmer the attacks down, not to deplete their infantry because they would be used to support Champagne. However, he didn't tell this to the British. Joffre wanted to give them the impression they were still hard at work fighting for Vimy, when in reality, they weren't focusing much energy there after realizing they couldn't penetrate through the machine guns. Overall, the skirmishes went on through November 4th, in Artois, but it was an overall failure for the French, and Joffre really screwed over the British on this one. At the Second Battle of Champagne, the French launched, launched an offensive with 18 divisions from the 2nd and 4th Army shortly after 9 a.m. Behind them, seven more divisions followed, along with one infantry and six cavalry divisions waiting in reserve. There was a lot of Pailus on board for this one. And get this, there were only six German divisions holding the line at Champagne. So here's how this went down. The French launched wave after wave and they managed to make what we'll call significant gains. In some areas, they had managed to take all three trench lines. They fought and gained over three kilometers of ground. But here's a couple problems. In some areas, the French didn't shift their artillery, so as the men began to take the German lines, they were getting obliterated by their own rounds. Next, the Germans created a second front line that was over three kilometers to the rear from the first front line. Here, the lines were heavily defended by machine guns and reverse slopes. This had become a major obstacle for the French as they came upon it. For several days, the French set in waves after waves that were being torn apart again by the machine guns. And it was during this time that General Erich von Falkenhayn began plugging any and all gaps in his lines with reserves. Between the 25th of September and the 5th of October, the French actually made progress. In a way, it was looking promising. Joffre ordered up more 75mm cannons to support this push. But overall, the German reserves continually plugged the gaps and the machine guns were continually reaping souls on the reverse slopes, which halted the French progress. On October 3rd, Joffre abandoned the attempt to break through Champagne and ordered commanders to fight a battle of attrition before terminating the offensive on November 6th. For those that don't know what a battle of attrition is, 
It's the attempt to win a war by grinding down the enemy through continuous loss of troops and supplies. Basically, kill as many as you can and let them deplete their stockpile. The French had suffered an estimated 145,000 casualties and the Germans over 72,000. You know, over 215,000 estimated casualties during this battle. And that quickly sums up the autumn French and British offensives for 1915. Note, Joffre ordered the War of Attrition. The Germans will use the same tactic come February of 1916, which is still viewed today as a barbarous act of war. Okay, so now I want to introduce you to a famous Bailu, Corporal Louis Bartas. This is going to be his account of what he experienced during the autumn offensive. There's going to be a lot of quotes since this is coming straight from the notebook he wrote during the war. Some would call it a diary, but he refers to it as his notebook. Tomatoes, tomatoes. But first, let's learn a little more about Louis Bartas. His book isn't an autobiography, it's an account from the war. There's not much written about his personal life, but we do know a little. Bartas was born on Bastille Day, July 14th, 1879, in a small southern commune in France called Homps. Today, the population is only about 580. It's just southeast of Toulouse. His mother was a seamstress and his father was a barrel maker, just as he would become. When Barthos was a kid, his family set settled in Barriac Minervois, not far from Homps. Louis was a bright young man that excelled in school. Unfortunately, he didn't advanced to the level of secondary education as many young men from small towns didn't. They had to get jobs. They had to acquire a working skill. He eventually furthered his education down the line. He was a proud craftsman as a barrel maker, and by 1914, he was already in the Army Reserves as a corporal. Barthas was a socialist, a militant trade union activist, and the secretary of the local branch of the Socialist Party, where he worked side-by-side side with his childhood friend, who was also the editor-in-chief of the newspaper Le Midi Socialiste, which Barthas read regularly. Now, keep in mind, Barthas was 35 years of age when the war kicked off. He was also married with two sons. He was a little more mature than the average young Frenchman in the, in the army during this time. So, along with being a socialist, and a little more ripe of age, he wasn't exactly the biggest supporter of the war. And look, I'm not sitting here saying I'm a supporter of socialism. This is not what I'm doing at all. I'm not a supporter of this. But truth be told, this is one of the reasons why I find his notebook so interesting. It's his socialist views on the war. He wasn't a man who was going to be persuaded into believing in, into something that he didn't believe in. Barthas stood his ground on his political beliefs. And you're getting the perspective from somebody completely different than, say, an Ernst Younger. Ernst was a, was a warrior. Barthas had no desire to make it past corporal. He didn't support the war, didn't do anything extraordinary aside from being in the war. You read about Ernst Younger, 
and you'll be like, holy crap, this man was pretty hardcore. You probably won't say this about Barthas. Louis was a man who believed there shouldn't have been a war, and I have to respect him for standing his ground on his beliefs. I find his notebook fascinating just as much as I find Storm of Steel written by Ernst Younger is fascinating. You can go deep down a rabbit hole on socialism. I do believe socialism was a different system prior to the Great War compared to socialism today. Then you have communism, which stems from socialism. Again, you can really go deep into the hole with this, which I'm not going to do. This is Barthas' experience. All right, now, let's get to it. Louis was mobilized in August of 1914 and didn't get decommissioned until February of 1919. He survived the whole damn war. And being that just about every Pailu in 1916 had to do a rotation in Verdun, your odds of surviving just that year alone wasn't good. Surviving the whole war was almost a miracle. He mobilized for the war with the 280th Infantry Regiment. Fast forwarding to September 25th, 1915. Barthas wrote, Dawn rose on this historic day. A gigantic battle was about to be engaged across an immense front. Millions of men, whole people, whole races were going to clash with each other. Thousands of fiery mouths of guns had been spitting lead and steel for three days without ceasing. In the final hours before H hour, the cannonade reached its climax, making the earth tremble, shaking the air, gripping our souls with an uncertain terror. Again, Barthas was at the Artois region during this battle. In the final hours, the artillery was pounding the German lines. The French at the Artois had delayed their assault until around 12.30 p.m. By now, the British were well underway with their attack at Laws. During the last few hours, the commanders did everything they could do to encourage their troops. They told the men that at Champagne, their comrades were slaughtering the Germans, and on their left, the English had taken Laws in a dash. They made it sound as if the German lines just crumbled at their feet when... We know that isn't the case. Noon came and a whistle brought the men to their feet. They were up next. Barthas and his fellow Pailus from the 13th squad entered a well-built communication trench, which was recently bombarded, leaving shell craters everywhere. He described the trench looking like a trash dump site. There was torn apart canteens, shredded packs, broken crates and wood, broken and twisted rifles thrown about everywhere by the artillery. This had become an obstacle for them to move through. Along with the trash, there was heavy mud from all the recent rains. All Barthas and his pals could do was cautiously push forward with their heads down. During the movement up, artillery continued to rage along with the opening of machine guns. All they could feel was the earth shake. All they could hear was huge explosions followed by the tat-tat-tat-tat from machine gun fire. The troops ahead of the 13th squad had crossed over the German front line when they hit a wall. They were stopped in their tracks by the wall of lead from the German, German machine guns. Barthas then wrote, 
Luckily, our General Nicel had a brilliant idea. Since we couldn't make the Germans leave with cannon blows, let's make them flee out of sheer terror. Immediately, the order was given to climb out of the trenches and to march across the open country with bayonets fixed to our rifle barrels. The whole division was there. It was a true forest of bayonets marching forward. But it did no good. The Botches stood their ground in their trenches, desperately, as if they were fighting on their own home ground. Some timed few shells exploding here and there over our heads made us crouch down in the communication trenches, without waiting for the authorization of the stupid General Nizel, whom, for my part, I didn't see at all that day. End quote. The 13th Squad was held up in an abandoned trench, which was the German front line at the time of the May Offensive when the nearby villages of Neuf Saint Vaust and Ablain Saint Nazaire were taken. It was during this time when Parthas and his pals were held up in the trench that Nizel gave the order to all orderlies, cooks, rationers, etc., to join their units so they could join the glory. Barthos refers to these men as slackers. This is what he called them, not me. You can only imagine what their reaction was when told to join the fight on the front. Barthos described the slackers' faces as having a look of sheer terror. That night, a torrential downpour began soaking the men, giving them a free shower. They had no shelter. They stayed soaked the whole night. Maybe I should call it a free bath instead of a shower, actually. Granted, I wasn't in a World War I trench, but I've lived through nights like that on multiple occasions. Barthos wrote how you have to live through nights like that to appreciate, on a winter night, a well-lit room, a good fire in the fireplace, and a warm, soft bed. Barthos went on to say, If we suffered so stoically without raising useless complaints, don't let anyone tell you that it was because of patriotism or to defend the rights of peoples to live their own lives or to end all wars or other nonsense. It was simply by force. Having lost our dignity and our human conscience, we were nothing more than beasts of burden. End quote. During the evening, Barthos could hear a man sobbing. It was his comrade Chapman. His son was at the attack in Champagne and couldn't help but question if he was alive or dead. The thought was causing his suffering. He went on to say, Only the rationer Therese slept. He had the rare ability of being able to sleep in any kind of place, no matter what the circumstances. Barely a hundred meters behind us was installed a battery of big artillery pieces which fired all night long. The whistling of the shells overhead kept our nerves on edge. The shells seemed to rush by, right above our trenches, making us duck our heads instinctively. End quote. To put salt on the wounds, the next morning the rationers were summoned to get the men their morning meal. But it was still dark and took the cooks hours to find the right direction in the trenches. By the time the food arrived, the bread had transformed into a rainy, soggy loaf of crap. And to top it off, the coffee had gone cold. It was now the morning of the 26th, still raining. The men are soaked. 
but by the afternoon, the sun started to break through, making a perfect time to restart the carnage. The 280th Regiment received the orders. They were to take the communication trench at La Target, then they would head for Farbus. The commander told them, Farbus will be pushed to the limit. Barthas spoke about this, saying, Push to the limit? That meant, pay no attention to losses. Take this village, whatever the cost. Too bad for those who left their hides there. That's war. General Nizel was just doing his job by sending us to the killing fields. Almost an hour later, the regiment made their way through the communication trenches at La Target. The village there had been completely destroyed, unrecognizable by anyone who knew of it. He then went on to say, Then we got caught up in an entanglement of trenches, crossing and recrossing the same places without finding the right path. We came upon men, isolated or in small groups, heading to the rear. Most gave no response to our questions. Others exclaimed, The poor guys, the poor guys, or It's horrible, frightful. They seemed half crazy. Nobody had heard anything about Farbos. We began to think that the village existed only in the imagination of General Nizel. End quote. There was mass confusion in the trenches. The regiment didn't reach the front lines until one in the morning. Needless to say, they weren't only exhausted, they were extremely frustrated. It was then that Colonel Pujal from the 280th was heard telling another colonel that his men had orders to attack Farbus that evening. The other colonel explained that this was insane. A division had been wiped out without taking the German second line. And if he attacked now, this would be suicide. None of them have ever even seen Farbus yet. Barthas went on to say, What can one think about this General Nizel who sent his regiments out into the, into the night like this? So dark that you couldn't see a cow at two paces. We're in the hands of a dangerous maniac. A total madman. Completely unbalanced in the head. How reassuring. End quote. Thank goodness for the 280th, they didn't attack. They ended up falling back on New St. Vost arriving at there at dawn. They had been trudging around since 1600 hours the previous afternoon. If they had moved in a straight line to Vost instead of starting in the trenches, this would have only been about a two hour movement. By this time in the war, New St. Vost, or sorry, I'm, I'm saying that wrong. Newville St. Vost was in complete ruins. What once stood a village was now just piles of rubble. Here and there, a half crumbled wall still stood, leaving the only evidence that civilians were there living just months ago. The ruins was now housing soldiers awaiting their next orders. The men had to clear a small patch in the earth with their entrenching tools just to lie down and rest. After only a few hours of rest, the new orders arrived for Barthas and the 280th. That evening, they would attack Farbas, the second attempt on the village. His regiment would be moving out at 5 p.m. What was supposed to be companies moving in harmony up to the front 
turned into one big soup sandwich with a side of au jus. They were constantly halted by other companies passing by, rushing in spurts to get caught up, then constant pullbacks. And on top of this, as Forrest Gump would say, it started a rain. The trenches began filling. The men were soaked and shivering to the bone. What a sight they would make when finally launching their attack. Turns out, they didn't need to launch the attack. The 23rd Company, which precedes Barthas Company the 21st, had traveled into no man's land and walked right on top of the Germans. A hailstorm of gunfire opened in the air. This was the welcome sign by the Germans. When the firing subsided, the men from the 23rd Company fell back. More accurately, some of the men fell back. Many of them didn't make it out of no man's land. Just past midnight, the trench line that the 21st Company was holding in, in was the old German front line. The trench and dugouts were starting to collapse from the rain. When daylight broke, the men's face had a haunting look. Behind the trench and in front was hundreds and hundreds of dead French soldiers. One human life per square meter. There was four to 500 meters to advance on. At 4 p.m., they were ordered to hoist their packs and to relieve another unit. They weren't really sure what they were supposed to be doing. Could this be another attack on Farbas? Barthas and his company entered a narrow boyau. Again, a boyau is a small trench. Their faces had a look of shock as they entered. There must have been a big hand-to-hand -hand battle because it looked like something terrible had just happened. Both German and French soldiers were spread everywhere in every imaginable position dead. They were kneeling, lying, hunched over. Some men were on their knees with their face in the watery mud. Men with bayonets driven in them, some shot, some had their heads beaten open. Dead, mud, and blood filled the boyau. And I do apologize if I'm saying that wrong. Boyau. I think it's boyau, or it could be bay. No, it, I think it's boyau. The 21st Company had no other option but to step through the narrow trench walking over the corpses. All of a sudden, the men leading the group started taking grenade blasts. The boyau led right into the German main trench. It was as if they were walking into a hornet's nest. The Germans began to pour into the boyau. There was firing from rifles in every direction. Men in front were either shot or stabbed to death. Barthas described the scene as a chaotic massacre. The men were desperate. They began to climb out of the trench in the open to run back. There was no safe spot. Bullets were coming from within the trenches and above. Barthos was close to the front and desperate. He felt the only way to possibly escape this was by climbing out and hoping for the best. He jumped up, but the weight of his pack and the mud pulled him back down. He was now on his back in the mud with the fighting just yards away. Men were falling all around him, including from the top of the trenches. He managed to unbuckle his pack and wiggled his way out of it. He managed to get on top of the trench. In fact, 
He was one of the last to do so before the Germans swept through. Knight was his savior. He was able to move and crawl his way back to another trench occupied by the 108th Infantry Regiment, who were already at the ready after hearing the cries from the other soldiers. Hurry up, they yelled at Barthas. Get out of our firing line. He was eventually guided back to the 280th where his captain was yelling at the survivors. You should be ashamed of what happened out there, he cried out. Get back out into the trench. But nobody moved. A French Bailu in Barthas' squad named Agusal was an epileptic who had been showing signs of mental stress for some time. But everyone looked after him. Agusal had completely lost his mind after hearing that they were ordered back into the same Buyao. He walked up to his captain, swung a bag at his face, hitting him, knocking off his glasses. An act such as this would normally get you shot. Agusal then charged wildly towards the Boyao, yelling a battle song at the top of his lungs. The air is pure, the road is wide, the bugler sounds the charge. The yelling eventually went silent. The next day, his lifeless body was found riddled with dozens of bullet holes. This was a heavy blow for the Boilus who had been looking after him. The squad began their movement on the trench again, this time with grenadiers leading the way. But the Germans had cleared from the area. They must have pulled back to their trench waiting. The men were held up, not knowing what to do next. The daily rain began to fall again. The heavy downpour continued all night. The attack was postponed and the men had no shelter. They stood in a pool of muddy water through the night, sleeping standing up. You would hear a splash here and there and knew somebody fell asleep just a little too hard. To get a good picture of what the Boyao looked like, Google Bailu by Louis Barthas and the cover picture to his book is a picture of a Boyao. And again, I apologize if I'm saying that wrong, but I believe I'm saying it right. I'm not positive if it's the same one, that, but it could be. If it's not the same Boyao, it's probably very similar to the one we're talking about here. And they're not big. These are small trenches. Around midnight, they received orders to keep pushing up the Boyao. But the Pailus violently protested. They demanded their lieutenant lead the way. They weren't about to sacrifice themselves in order for him to get a second stripe on his uniform. They referred to this small trench as the Boyao de Morts, the Trench of the Dead. Barthos writes how some might find this cowardice, but explains, Mounting an attack against sturdy, well-defended trenches, protected by thick barbed wire entanglements, without the slightest artillery fire beforehand, wouldn't you call that criminal, he asks? There's that line drawn in the dirt in scenarios the Great War presented. You can have one leg in the cowardice section while the other stands on the criminally wrong. I can't have an opinion. Only those who were there knew the difference between right and wrong. Bottom line, whether they protested or not, when that whistle blew or those orders came to attack, 
They were going to attack whether they, they liked it or not. It's now 9 p.m. The squad has been waiting for hours with bayonets fixed, dreading hearing the words, en avant, forward. But the attack overall was postponed. So they sheathed their bayonets and took to the shovels because on this night, they would be doing some hard labor, digging at a communication trench. The men from the 21st company were exhausted, so higher-ups having such a huge heart gave them a 24-hour rest break from the trench. However, this was no break. They were put to work burying the dead that had been killed from the 25th of September to the 26th of September. I mean, really, I probably would have just stayed in the trench if, they, if given the option. But they weren't given an option. As a corporal, Barthos was tasked with going through the dead's pockets and removing their ID tags. As this sounds like a relief from putting the corpses into shelled out holes and then burying them, to me, going through the pockets of the dead doesn't sound good. There's, there's an eerie sense to this. He explains that he found himself whispering to the dead as not to disturb them. Another bad part of burying the dead, and remember some of these corpses are badly mutilated and grotesque. They didn't have water to wash their hands after. The best they could do was rub them with dirt and mud to clean off what they could. Barthas said that they became worse than animals. My response to that statement is, we've always been worse than animals. Animals don't do this to each other. It was now October 1st, and they were back in the same Boyale, now barricaded with sandbags separating the two sides. They were in rotations between the trench and the ruins of Neuve saint vaust Sorry, I said that wrong again. Neuville saint vaust Darn French words. From the 25th of September up till now, they were only averaging two to four hours of sleep per day. Luck came their way when they were ordered to, I, I'm going to butcher this one, Moria, M-A-R-O-E-U-I-L, Moruel, <laughs> whatever, for four days rest. Then October 9th, the 280th Regiment received another order to move in the opposite direction of the trench away from Neuville saint vaus They were moved to the village of Agnele. Well, I don't know why I'm having such hard time with these French words. I mean, I don't speak French. Maybe that's the reason why. They were moved to a village of Agnes le Duchamp, where they would be billeted. But this didn't last long. Shortly after arriving, they were sent back to a trench to support the 281st Regiment and in another divisional attack. Now the 281st Regiment, as you know, as I recap the Battle of the Artois, I said basically the machine gun just became too much and they just were getting gunned down. And that's basically what happened to the 281st Regiment. Men were getting just obliterated by the machine guns. So the 280th, that's what they were doing. They were basically replacing the dead. October really kept playing the same record. They were pulled on and off the line. They continued to work with their shovels. 
little rest, the rain kept them soaked. But on November 2nd, the rain really came down hard. Bartha said that the trenches were transforming into sewers from human waste. That day they were given what he says was a senseless order. They were to clean out the Boyao even with the rain coming down on them. How were they supposed to accomplish this? The men refused the work. Barthas wrote back on, on the written order that it, it would be best to wait for the rain to stop before they started working. A response to that came a half hour later from the captain explaining to Barthas that he was responsible for putting the men to work immediately because he was the corporal. Barthas again responded with the following. Captain, I know the limits of work, of effort, of fatigue which one can ask of a man. My conscience won't allow me to go beyond those limits. I either grant me that or give my command to someone else. A few minutes later, Barthas was ordered to present his, himself to the captain. Barthas said the captain was below ground in a covered shelter seated at a table playing cards with the lieutenant while a teapot was being heated up. Corporal, by order of the commandant, you have to put your men to work all night long to keep the Boyao passable up to the front lines. Go to it. Captain, as long as the rain is coming down in torrents, I'm not going to have my men out there working because their efforts would be useless and all their fatigue, their suffering would be for nothing. And besides, they wouldn't obey me. I repeat, it's the commandant's order. And I repeat that this order can't be carried out. Please give the command of the grenadier section to another non-com. It's not for me, a simple corporal, to be in charge. The captain stood up in rage. Corporal Bartas, for the last time, I'm demanding that you execute this order. I'm holding you responsible. I'll come to see for myself. Now get out of here. As Barthas looked at the men when he returned, they were freezing, shivering in the rain and cold. He couldn't bear to put them to work. He made his decision to defy the captain's order. Barthas took off his wet clothes, wrapped himself in a less wet blanket, and closed his eyes thinking he would be shot the next day for this. Around midnight, somebody started to shake him. He said, let me die in peace. It was the captain's orderly, and he said to Barthas, are you crazy? Here, read this. The captain was demanding an update on the work that had been accomplished. Barthas wrote that his men were at work on the trench. Come morning, the men knew Barthas had refused orders to not make them work in the rain that night. The men appreciated this, so they energetically grabbed shovels and began to work. Around 10 a.m., the commandant and the captain paid the men a visit. The captain had a suspicious look on his face. He asked, So this is what you accomplished since last evening with 40 men? But thankfully for Barthas, they didn't press the issue and continued on. The rain was getting worse. It was creating landslides. 
The buried corpses were being unearthed and pushed back into the trenches. The dead from the 25th to the 26th of September. You could imagine what condition they were in come November. It's almost like that movie, the original Poltergeist, that scene when they're in the pool towards the end and all those corpses start coming up. You know, we look at that movie as as horror. It's a scary movie, especially when you're a kid. What was I like? I don't know, four or five years old when I seen it, maybe around there. It was scary at the time. It's a horror movie. It's meant to inflict fear. But this was reality for them. And it really was like this. These corpses were coming up from the earth. And these weren't just bones. These were mutilated, rotting bodies that had just been soaking in that rain and mud. But sadly, the men were used to this. Rotting corpses reemerging from the ground had become the norm. It was just another day to have your foot fall into a chest cavity or have a leg or arm sticking up from the ground trip you up. They just ignored it as best they could and continue on with what they were doing. They had to. They had no other choice or they would go stir crazy. That was Louis Barthas' experience during the Third Battle of Artois. Of course, just because the battle ended didn't mean the fighting stopped. The rain continued to wreak havoc. At one point, both sides had to get out of the trenches to prevent themselves from drowning. Barthas wrote about this in his notebook, saying the following. December 10th. At many places along the front line, the soldiers had to come out of their trenches so as not to drown. The Germans had to do the same. We, therefore had to the singular spectacle of two enemy armies facing each other without firing a shot. Our common sufferings brought our hearts together, melted the hatreds, nurtured sympathy between strangers and adversaries. Those who deny it are ignoring human psychology. Frenchmen and Germans looked at each other and saw that they were all men, no different from one another. They smiled exchanged comments, hands reached out and grasped. We shared tobacco, a canteen of coffee or wine. If only we spoke the same language. All right, folks, that's going to be it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed this Pilou's experience during the Battle of Artois and his overall perspective on the war. I shouldn't say overall. There's much more to this book than just the Third Battle of Artois. My Great War recommendation for this episode is no other than Louis Barthas's book, Boy Lou, his notebook between 1914 and 1918. You know, this is one of my favorite books on the Great War, in my top five for sure. It's a fascinating read. If you enjoy this episode, you'll surely enjoy the book. And and it's a different perspective, and that's why I like it so much. You know, I can take goodbye to all that written by Robert Graves. Very different perspective on the war. He was an Ivy Leaguer, you know, one of those smart college kids that felt it was just his duty to do the war. And again, then you go towards uh, Ernst Younger from Storm of Steel. That's probably my number one book, but... It's a different perspective. Ernst Younger was more of the warrior. He 
I don't want to say he enjoyed being there, but he definitely didn't have the same outlook as Louis Barthas and somebody like Robert Graves. He was going to fight. I mean, he is a true warrior. He's getting shot. He's getting back up. He's taking souls. So that's why I really appreciate this book. It just gives you a different perspective on it. I mean, not everybody can be an Ernst Younger. Not everybody can be a Robert Graves. And, and that's what I enjoy about it. All right, folks. Remember, you can follow the show on Instagram at OTTGW Podcast. You can follow me on Facebook at Over the Top A Great War Podcast. Oh, yeah, Twitter. Twitter is the same as Instagram at OTTGW Podcast. And you can email the show at ottgwpodcast at gmail.com if you want to just throw me a line, say hi. If you got a comment about the show, you got a suggestion, throw me an email. I will do my best to respond in a timely manner. Thank you for your continued support. Until the next episode, take care, everyone. Mm -hmm.